The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. As a Christian, there are certain hallmarks and characteristics that should surround your life according to this Word of God. The very character of your life should be remarkably changed, and certain supernatural signs should accompany you from time to time as the Holy Spirit leads you and works through your life. Today we're going to look at the amazing and unusual signs that are promised in the Bible to accompany every genuine disciple of Jesus. Hello, I'm Christine Dark. If you are a Spirit-filled, born-again believer and a disciple of Jesus, you are probably familiar with the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. It's the final chapter of Mark's short gospel, and some of the early manuscripts omit the final verses, verses 9 to 20, which I'd like to read to you now. These are important verses, and I believe they have a ring of authenticity about them because they agree with other scriptures in the Bible. So here we go with Mark chapter 16, starting with verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they didn't believe it. See how honest the Bible is? Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. And the Gospel of Luke identifies one of these disciples by the name of Cleophas. These two returned and reported it to the rest, but they didn't believe them either. You see, this is amazing honesty. Later, Jesus appeared to the 11 as they were eating. He appeared to 11, not 12, because Judas, the betrayer, had hung himself. And Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And now here's the Great Commission as given in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus said to them, Go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who doesn't believe will be condemned. Then he said, verse 17, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name. In whose name? In the name of Jesus. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So Jesus gives us five signs here that are going to follow the believer. So he says, in my name, in the name of Jesus, or Yeshua, his Hebrew name, we're going to drive out demons. This speaks of exorcisms of evil spirits. 
He says, we'll speak in new tongues. And this describes a supernatural and holy prayer language that we'll have. He says, we will pick up serpents with our hands. Now this could refer to spiritual warfare or the words could be taken literally. Certainly not as a provocation to test God as in snake handling cults, but it's a promise of supernatural protection. And the next sign is similar because Jesus said, if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. So this speaks of having an immunity from poisons. And then the fifth sign Jesus mentioned in this passage is, we'll lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. And then Mark 16 continues, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Now, in this last chapter of the Gospel of Mark, some manuscripts, as I said, don't mention the verses that I've just read. Instead, the narrative ends abruptly after the resurrection and just says that Jesus himself also sent the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation from east to west. Amen. So the ending of Mark 16 is disputed. And let's check and see if verses 17 and 18 about those five supernatural signs that Jesus said will follow believers can be substantiated by other scriptures. After all, theologians insist that the Bible should interpret itself. Scripture should be the commentary on scripture. So if the concepts listed in Mark 16, verses 17 and 18, can be found elsewhere in the Bible, then we have every reason to believe in the validity of the statements by Jesus in Mark 16, 17 and 18. So for your understanding, I'm going to repeat those verses again. Jesus said that five signs will accompany those who believe. He said, in my name, they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. And they will lay their hands on sick people and the sick will recover. Okay, the first of the five specific ministry signs mentioned by Jesus is that believers will cast out demons, evil spirits. Do you believe that? I do. I've done it by the grace of God, and I've seen it done many times. Can we find the casting out of demons elsewhere in the Bible as a legitimate sign? Well, of course we can, because Jesus drove out seven demons from Mary Magdalene, and he delivered the Gadarene demoniac from a legion of demons. And the Lord said very clearly in John 14, 12, that those who believe in Jesus are supposed to do the same works that he did. And he predicted we'll do even greater works because he has sent us the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, casting out demons was a major activity of Jesus along with preaching, teaching, and healing. 
and his apostles cast out demons. For example, there's the incident of the slave girl in Acts chapter 16. She had a spirit of divination and Paul cast it out of her. Because of so many other Bible verses about supernatural signs working through believers, we're without excuse if we deny the validity of Mark 16 verses 17 and 18. Even before the crucifixion and resurrection, when Jesus commissioned and sent out 70 disciples to preach, they had returned to him rejoicing that demons were subject to them and their authority. Whether or not you consider the last verses of Mark 16 to be authentic, there are plenty of other verses in the Bible that show Jesus and believers demonstrating these signs and wonders. Now, the second sign mentioned by Jesus in Mark 16 is speaking in tongues. This describes a heavenly prayer language that results in the empowerment and comes from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Besides Mark 16, the gift of speaking in unknown tongues is mentioned elsewhere many times in the book of Acts, as well as in the epistles in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14.4, the Apostle Paul said that a person who speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself, meaning that he or she is strengthened spiritually, personally. And I know this to be true. The third sign Jesus mentioned in Mark 16 is the picking up or casting down of serpents, venomous snakes. Do we have any example of that kind of activity in the Bible? Yes. Power over serpents and scorpions was given by Jesus to his followers and was mentioned elsewhere in Luke chapter 10 and verse 19. And yes, we have a very real incident of St. Paul coming ashore to Malta after a shipwreck. This incident is recorded in Acts chapter 28. As Paul was gathering a pile of rushwood to put on the fire, a viper was driven out by the heat and fastened itself onto Paul's hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from Paul's hand, they assumed he must be some terrible criminal. But Paul astonished them by shaking the snake off into the fire, suffering no ill effects. The people had expected him to swell up and die. But now they changed their minds about Paul and believed that he had supernatural power. So he was taken to the island's chief official, whose father was sick from fever and dysentery. And Paul laid his hands on the man and healed him. Well, that's another example of one of the five signs mentioned in Mark 16, the laying on of hands to heal the sick. And so all of the island's sick people came to Paul and they were cured. Hallelujah. We simply cannot allow verses 17 and 18 from Mark chapter 16 to be stolen from us. As I said, these concepts are found elsewhere in the Bible. So now let's examine the fourth sign mentioned in Mark 16. Jesus said, if believers drink any deadly thing, it will not harm them. 
Can you believe this? We've got to let our faith come up to this word. Well, there's no recorded instance in the New Testament of this happening, but this promise of immunity is close to the idea of immunity from a snake bite. And we've seen that the Apostle Paul survived venom unscathed. There's also a church tradition that St. John the Evangelist was offered a cup of poison wine, but he supernaturally transformed the wine into a snake to reveal the poison. However, in recent church history, there's a well-documented, beautiful testimony of an Indian believer named Sadhu Sundar Singh, who became perhaps India's most famous Christian. I recall reading about him many years ago when I read his biography called The Saffron Robe, A Life of Sadhu Sundar Singh, written by Janet Lynch Watson. And many other books have been written about him. Sundar Singh was from the Punjab state in northern India before partition. He was poisoned many times by his family for believing in Jesus, but he survived every attempt. And that within itself was a great supernatural sign to his family that God was truly with him and that Jesus is Lord. Because you see, Sundar Singh was born into a family of Sikhs. And Sikhism is one of the established religions in the area, standing apart from Hinduism and Islam. Sundar Singh's mother took him to sit at the feet of a sadhu. That's an aesthetic Indian holy man. But the untimely death of his mother sent the young Sundar into despair. And he took out his anger and aggression on Christian missionaries. To defy them, he burned a Bible page by page while his friends watched. Sundar Singh wrote that, he said, although I believed I'd done a very good thing by burning the Bible, I felt unhappy. And so he was contemplating suicide. But suddenly his room filled with a glow. A man appeared before him. Sundar Singh heard a voice say, How long will you deny me? I died for you. I have given my life for you. And he saw the man's hands were pierced by nails. It was Jesus. And Sundar was amazed that Jesus showed no anger toward him for burning the Bible. Jesus only demonstrated love towards him. Well, despite much persecution, Sundar Singh was baptized. His father denounced him, and his brother Rajender, who also later became a great preacher, attempted to poison his own brother. In fact, Sundar was not poisoned just once, but a number of times, and people also threw poisonous snakes into his house. But he claimed power over wild animals similar to the gifting of St. Francis of Assisi. In fact, in St. Francis's day, a wolf had terrorized a city in Italy, but the wild animal was tamed by St. Francis. And the St. Francis story is one of many in Christian narratives that depict strong believers exerting influence over animals and nature. 
Okay, the last sign that's mentioned in Mark 16 is to use your hands to impart the Lord's healing power to the sick. And I think it's important to note that in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it explains that the doctrine of the laying on of hands is actually an elementary principle of the Messiah, along with repentance, faith, baptisms, the resurrection, and eternal judgment. Yet the laying on of hands receives very little teaching in most churches. Let's remember that the laying on of hands was the modus operandi of Jesus himself. The apostles practiced it, and so should we. And the custom certainly wasn't started by Jesus. It was practiced in the Hebrew scriptures, in the times of the patriarchs, as well as during the Mosaic period. Patriarchs and leaders passed on blessings, giftings, and powers. And the transmission of God's power came through their hands. Let's look at the doctrine of the laying on of hands in the Hebrew scriptures. First of all, we see it as a means to bestow and to convey blessings. In the book of Genesis, the patriarch Isaac laid hands on his sons, Jacob and Esau, and prophesied over them. Then before he died, Jacob laid hands on his grandsons and his children to prophesy their future. And that's recorded in the book of Genesis. We also see the practice of laying on of hands during the ordination of the Aaronic priesthood and the dedication of the Levites as an act of consecration. And concerning the sacrificial system, the priests themselves laid their hands upon a live goat called the scapegoat, and they confessed the iniquities of the people of Israel. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the laying on of hands onto the animal was a picture of the transference of guilt from the people onto the animal. Now Moses laid hands on his protege Joshua for a transference of anointing and for the spirit of wisdom. Joshua had already demonstrated a very high level of service and faithfulness throughout his lifetime but he was given a further blessing and ability to serve in his new capacity as leader of the nation in place of Moses. Now let's look at this important doctrine of the laying on of hands being carried over into the New Testament. And don't forget that according to Mark 16, 18, this activity of the laying on of hands is supposed to be a part of the spiritual life of every believer. Children were blessed by Jesus when he laid his hands on them. And many people were healed by the Lord through his hands. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter in Matthew 9:18, he actually took her by the hand and spoke to her, commanding her to rise up. And in Mark 6, 5, in spite of their general lack of faith, Jesus healed a few sick folk in his hometown of Nazareth by laying his hands on them. 
But all who came to Jesus in Capernaum were healed through the laying on of his hands. Luke 440 records these marvelous words. It says that when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on them and every one of them were healed. In Luke 13, 13, Jesus loosed the woman with a spirit of infirmity by the laying on of his hands. She had suffered for 18 years. And the apostles and disciples healed others by the laying on of their hands, as foretold by Jesus when he gave the Great Commission in Mark 16. For example, in Damascus, a disciple of the Lord named Ananias restored the sight of Saul of Tarsus by the laying on of his hands. Spiritual gifts were imparted when the apostles Peter and John laid hands on new believers in Samaria. And Paul laid hands on the Ephesian believers, and that's recorded in Acts 19.6. And it says that when Paul had laid hands on the believers in Ephesus, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So gifts were imparted to believers by prophecy and the laying on of hands. In fact, appointment or dedication to service was accompanied with the laying on of hands in the Bible. As when deacons were appointed to serve tables in Jerusalem church. Or when prophets and teachers were sent out on a divine mission. For example, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were sent as missionaries after the congregation at Antioch had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on Barnabas and Paul. The imposition of their hands was like a prophetic picture because the Holy Spirit had said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The imposition of hands was like a physical separation to a sacred work. It was a holy ceremony suitable to such, to such a purpose. And therefore, whenever a congregation today has a similar purpose to commission somebody, they have a good example here in the book of Acts for an ordination service. With the laying on of hands, it has great solemnity meaning, and power. But I, it's important to mention 1 Timothy 5.22. Here in this verse, Paul gives an important caution about the laying on of hands. He wrote, Don't let hands be laid upon someone suddenly, and thereby doing it, you're going to share responsibility, potentially, he said, for their sins. This command refers primarily to the laying on of hands at the ordination of elders and deacons. That is to say, don't appoint anybody to church offices without full trial and examination. Otherwise, you could be an accessory to their potential misbehavior in office. While the circumstances in this verse, not to lay hands hastily on someone, are not explained any further, but I would also take it to mean not to use the ministry of the laying on of hands too casually. 
always we just must be led by the Spirit. And also, don't let just anybody lay hands on you, especially if you're not sure of their consecration and dedication. Because the transference of spirits is potentially a reality. You may have to cut off from yourself something spiritual in the name of Jesus, something unclean imparted to you because you allowed hands to be laid on you by somebody who could be an imposter or who is under the influence of evil spirits. So always be sure that the person ministering to you is of God. So now to review. In the New Testament, the laying on of hands is mentioned for various occasions, especially for healing the sick. But also it's used in bestowing divine blessing, as when a, a parent blesses a child, and as well as imparting the Holy Spirit to believers. We saw that in Acts 8.17, when Peter and John placed their hands on the Samaritan believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. But the laying on of hands is also seen as a practice in appointments to ecclesiastical office, as well as setting apart certain believers for a specific and holy task. I hope you will begin by faith, at least to reach out and touch people to heal them in the name of Jesus. But in order to do that, you must be sure that you are a real believer. So how do we become saved and born again to become a real believer in Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us, it says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And what about you? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? And are you willing to confess with your mouth before others that Jesus is Lord? If your answer is yes, the Bible says you shall be saved. But what about your healing? Healing is also the heritage of every believer and the gift of God. Because Jesus paid the ultimate price for both our sins and our sicknesses in this fallen world by dying for us and paying for our sins with his precious blood. Mark 16 says believers will lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. So if you're ill or in pain, we invite you now as a believer to lay your hand over the hurting area of your body as a sheer act of faith. Or if you have more pains than you have hands, just put your hand on the top of your head to represent your entire body's healing or put your hand over your heart and believe with me that in the name of Jesus, his power from heaven is entering your body now to heal you from head to toe. Amen and amen. So be it. Well, we've seen wonderful healings in our ministry and we are believers in this word and not doubters. So if Jesus is touching you, please tell me about it. I'd love to hear from you because Jesus is the same today as he was yesterday. He's our healer. 
because he's alive and his power never fails when we trust and believe in him. So thank you for watching and I invite you to stay in touch through social media and through our website, exploits.tv, where you can click online to receive our color magazine exploits. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dark. Shalom. A dollar, a pound, familiar currencies around the world, but in Israel, what counts is the value of the Israeli shekel. In the present financial uncertainty, it's good news that the Israeli shekel is healthy and strong. But it means when exchanging those dollars, pounds, and euros, you just don't have as much buying power as in the past. In other words, ministering in Israel has become ever more expensive. Thank you for helping to make the Jerusalem Channel possible with your support. In the United States, we are a tax-deductible ministry. In the UK, our charity can claim gift aid. And you can make a donation through our website using a credit card or debit card, or write to us. In the USA, it's Post Office Box 2768, Stanton, Virginia, 24402. In the United Kingdom, our address is Box 109, Hereford, HR4, 9XR. Thank you.